Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk, and we've got a lot to cover today. So first and foremost, thanks to Chad Matlin for filling in for me last week. I know I picked quite the week to be on vacation. Maybe think of today's podcast as a series of emergency podcasts catching up on everything I missed while I was away. We'll start with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Four days in, Ukraine has kept Russian forces out of major population centers, but the situation is in flux and it's unclear how far Russia may go to escalate the invasion. More than half a million Ukrainian refugees have already fled the country, and that number is expected to continue to grow. Much of the world has levied economic sanctions against Russia, and the Russian rubble and financial markets are now under serious stress. Western countries have also increasingly pledged military aid to Ukraine. To better understand the politics at play, we'll first look at how all of this is being processed here at home. What do Americans think about Biden's handling of Russia's aggression? And what kinds of interventions are they willing to support? We'll also discuss how the GOP is reacting, given that some Republican leaders, including former President Trump, seem to be out of step with Republican voters. Later in the show, we'll broaden our scope and speak with an expert on Russia and former Soviet states about how we got to this point and what could be done to ease the conflict. In addition to all of that, Biden announced his pick to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court last week. It's D.C. Circuit Court Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. We're going to look at a couple metrics that we have to get a sense of where ideologically on the court she may land. Here with me to discuss all of that is senior writer Amelia Thompson DeVoe. Hello, Amelia. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Morning, Galen. And politics and tech reporter Kaylee Rogers. Hey, Kaylee. Hi, Galen. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I think the lesson learned is I'm just never going to go on vacation again. I think one of the (laughs) last times I went on vacation right before COVID, the phone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky came out and Democrats started their impeachment proceedings in the House. Uh, So I don't know. Maybe I just shouldn't go on vacation. Well, just like take away your passport, Galen. Correlation is not causation, (laughs) Galen. I will say also the Mueller report came out while I was on vacation. So maybe there's just something about 538 reporters. Who can say? The world definitely revolves around us, right? (laughs) Clearly, clearly. Uh, I will say it was very weird to be on vacation while all of this was going down. I spent a lot of yesterday getting read in. Excuse me, though, if I if there's anything that I have missed over the past week. Hopefully, Amelia, Nathaniel, and Kaylee, you can help me get caught up alongside our listeners. But let's begin with what Americans are thinking about the events of the past week. So it's very early, and I know that pollsters haven't had much time to even conduct surveys. But Nathaniel, what can we say about what Americans think of Russia and its invasion of Ukraine? Americans are not a big fan of Russia. So, for example, in a recent Economist YouGov poll, 71% of Americans thought that Russia posed a either somewhat uh, or very serious threat to the U.S. Obviously, they're also not fans of, of the invasion. And interestingly, there's not that much of a partisan split on this, uh, as Akili can talk to more. But Americans are also um, generally, I think, well, it's interesting, and we'll talk about this more. They aren't necessarily a fan of Biden's handling of the situation, but they are fans of what Biden is doing, if that makes sense. So specifically, they support uh, implementing sanctions against Russia. So for example, um, that same poll from Economist YouGov found that 57% of Americans thought that sanctions were a good idea. But Americans also oppose sending US troops um, to intervene in the crisis. Um, So again, same poll, 55% thought that was a bad idea. Um, And of course, these are the two positions that, uh, that Biden has been taking. Right. Yeah. So as Nathaniel mentioned, there's not a huge gap between how Democrats feel about Russia and Putin and how Republican voters feel about him, um, at least according to recent polls from January and February prior to the actual invasion. There was an Economist YouGov poll at the end of January where 15 percent of Republicans said they had a very or somewhat favorable view of Putin. Uh, That's similar to about 11 percent of Americans overall who said so. But a plurality of Republicans in that poll, so 45 percent, said they had a very unfavorable view of Putin. A morning consult poll from two weeks ago 
found that actually more Democrats, 20% of Democrats, said they strongly or somewhat approved of how Putin was handling the conflict with Ukraine uh, compared to Republicans, 10% of whom said so. There was a CBS UGAV poll at the beginning of the month where they asked whether the U.S. should support Ukraine, support Russia, or neither. And only 4% of Republicans said support Russia, uh, and about 5% of Democrats said the same. So overall, R- Republicans are not fans of Putin. They're, they're not fans of how he's handling this conflict with Ukraine. Um, and that is in contrast to some of the messaging we've heard from Trump, for example, who has been very soft in his language on Putin, praising him, and even after the invasion, um, kind of defending him. He said that the the attack was sad, but that he didn't believe that this was something Putin really wanted to do, kind of made it sound like Putin's really a good guy here and he just kind of felt forced to invade or something. So Trump's messaging has been kind of out of step with Republican voters and Republican Americans at large. So what kind of dynamic does that create? Is this the sort of situation where elites can steer public opinion in one direction or another and we end up with a partisan split on this? I mean, it's also worth saying that congressional leadership, Republican congressional leadership, has been singing a different note compared with President Trump. You know, they've been critical of Biden, but they also, of course, have been critical of Putin. Is this the kind of situation where Americans are paying close enough attention that they're just going to have their own opinions about it and it's not really up to elites to drive public opinion? So political science research um, has been pretty clear that foreign policy is a an issue where elites drive public opinion because it's not an area where um, people have very uh, firmly formed opinions of their own. Um, so I would expect elites to, to drive opinion of the crisis in Ukraine just as they have uh, driven opinion of past foreign policy crises. But I think to your point, Galen, it is important to note that elites does not necessarily mean just Trump. I think that um, other Republicans, like Republicans in Congress, um, you know, they have a fair amount of power in this too. And this kind of goes back to a broader um, theme that we've discussed on this podcast before that I think that congressional Republicans have have more power to shape public opinion about democracy and, and you know, Trump's violations of norms and, and things like that than they have necessarily decided to, to use. Um, they've deferred more to Trump. But I think in this regard, certainly the majority of Republican elite voices at this point, I would say, have been anti-Russia, even if maybe the loudest voices um, have been softer on it. Well, and there's been some interesting movement among some voices on the right, right? Because Kaylee, in your piece, you wrote about Tucker Carlson as being someone who had been sort of saying, like, why wouldn't we support Russia and calling it a border dispute, which is obviously like an insane downplaying of a war that has already been going on since 2014. Um, But it seemed like he changed his framing a little bit a few days ago and was talking more about this as kind of, you know, being like a tragedy and something that is serious and something where Putin is maybe not the person we want to side with. Um, So I'm curious, like, what you made of that, Kaylee, and, and if that was surprising to you to see him change his tune a little bit in that way. So Tucker Carlson earlier, before the, the you know, invasion actually happened, had this segment where he was saying, you know, what, you should really ask yourself, why do I hate Putin so much? You know, who does that serve? Has he ever done anything bad to me? Uh, and this sort of ridiculous segment that he had. Uh, and at the end, you know, he says, no, Putin's never done anything bad to me. After the invasion, his next uh, episode, he did shift slightly. He, you know, he called... Um, the war a tragedy. He said Putin started this war. You know, he was pretty clear about that. But it's not as if he was like really like hyper critical of Putin. And I think that the the general messaging we're getting from the right, from Republican leaders and from pundits like uh, Tucker Carlson is really focusing on what, you know, they're calling for America to do as far as sanctions, what they think should be done, and also really heavily criticizing Biden and blaming him for this war, saying that his withdrawal from Afghanistan made the country look weak, and that sort of emboldened Putin. Um, There's been a number of critiques. Mitch McConnell made this argument. Ted Cruz made this argument. Like, that's sort of been their messaging from the beginning. uh, And that seems to be resonating with voters. I know online, some of the communities that I follow, the sort of slightly more mainstream, really pro-Trump boards, they weren't praising Putin. They were dunking on Biden. They were sending memes. They were saying this would never happen under Trump. You know, Democrats, this is what you get for electing Biden and calling him senile and out of touch and uh, feckless. They really love this word feckless. Um, 
So that kind of messaging has really seems to be sinking in um, as far as blaming Biden. And that might kind of explain some of the approval ratings that we saw leading up to uh, the invasion, which were pretty much in par with Biden's overall approval ratings, um, which are are both below water. So I will say as far as observing the media goes. I don't usually spend that much time watching cable news, but I was on a plane for several hours yesterday. And so I had access to MSNBC, Fox, CNN, and I was kind of cycling through the three of them. And the coverage was all exactly the same. It was, this is horrifying. It was pictures of war. It was, I can't believe this. Putin is terrible. You know, what is America going to do to sanction Russia? What is the rest of the world going to do to sanction Russia? It was maybe a rare moment in the American cable news landscape where the coverage was basically all exactly the same. And again, this was a Sunday, so I don't know. The weeknight shows may have their different spins or whatever it may be. In an environment like this, is that the sort of environment where we see a a rally around the flag effect, where if Biden is seen as strong and and competent in terms of confronting Russia or confronting this aggression, levying sanctions, things like that, that people will approve of him in a way that, you know, he's very unpopular right now? Um, No. So one of my kind of pet peeves is I think that rally around the flag effects are really misunderstood. A rally around the flag effect has often has a very high bar and it, it really requires a really like your country is under serious existential threat type of thing like what we saw in in 9-11 after 9-11 um, with George W. Bush's approval rating which which absolutely soared um, that's probably the most famous example um, and we have an, we do have an example of a rally around the flag effect right now um, but in Ukraine right so there was actually a, um, a recent poll and with a very big I think asterisk here about I'm not sure how you conduct a poll in Ukraine right now um, but Um, President Zelensky's approval rating had shot up to 91% in this tracking poll. And I think that's clearly a type of situation where, I mean, we've all seen, I think, the videos at this point of Zelensky kind of posting these videos of him bravely resisting, uh, you know, Russian, um, you know, the, the Russian invaders from, you know, kind of his undisclosed locations or from the streets of Kiev. Clearly the, you know, his image has, you know, whatever kind of political differences people in Ukraine may have had with Zelensky have melted away in, in the face of this clearly existential crisis. Um, I would imagine, although I can't say this for sure, but I think it's safe to assume that any internal opposition he has had, you know, people aren't criticizing him for his stance on healthcare or whatever the major issues in Ukraine were before this. In the United States, you still have people criticizing Biden, um, you know, as we've been discussing, you know, Republicans have been saying that he's weak. Um, and so a, a rally around the flag effect, you know, it doesn't just happen automatically because there is a crisis somewhere in the world. It, it has to kind of create this moment of national unity. And, and that unity is very clearly not here right now. Um, and it kind of goes back to what I alluded to before, which is that maybe everybody in America agrees that what's happening to Ukraine is is terrible and that Russia is a bad actor in this situation. And that's why you see these very stark numbers. You know, Kaylee was citing like, you know, the number of people who approve of Russia in this situation is like 10% or like single digits. I mean, that and, and there isn't a huge partisan divide there, if any. And those are the kinds of overwhelming non-polarized numbers that you um, only see when when people, you know, the, the media apparatuses and and um, political elites are in broad agreement about something like that, but they're they're in broad agreement about Ukraine and Russia, not about Joe Biden, and so that's why you still see Biden's approval numbers being pretty bad um, on the issue of Ukraine as well as overall. So, Nathaniel, do you have a sense of why it is that people are so pro sanction? And that that is like what Joe Biden is doing. He and NATO and really all of Europe are coming together to sanction Russia in really brutal ways that they were not able to do back in 2014 when Russia first invaded. And so it seems like Biden on paper is delivering on what Americans want. So is it that they're not aware that this is what the Biden administration is doing? Is it that partisanship is such a heady force that even if you see him doing that, you think like, oh, well, you know, there must be more he could be doing. They must He must be sanctioning them wrong. Like, it seems like this should be a moment for Joe Biden where the war is going badly for Putin. You know, Ukraine is stronger than it seems. Like he's 
managed to help unite Europe in a way that a couple weeks ago seemed kind of unlikely. So like, what could Biden be doing to get credit from Americans? Is this just a sign of like, he can actually do nothing to get some to win some people over? Or is it that they don't care as much about this conflict as they care about other things? Yeah, no, I, I think you guys are asking exactly the right questions. Um, and I will say that it is still pretty early for us to have kind of concrete data on how Biden is handling a situation, or I should say how Americans think Biden is handling the situation. So most of the polls that we have that show um, him kind of underwater on this issue are from before the invasion. So I'll cite a couple right now. From the Associated Press and Nork Center for Public Affairs Research, um, Americans disapprove of Biden's handling of the U.S. relationship with Russia, 56 percent to 43 percent. This was February 18th to 21st. Um, Quinnipiac University, February 10th through 14th, they disapproved uh, 54 percent to 34 percent. And these numbers were very closely in line with his handling of foreign policy more generally and his overall approval rating. So I do think at this point there was an element of maybe people weren't paying full attention to what was going on. Um, they certainly weren't aware that he had, you know, for example, you know, threatened these sanctions. And so um, they were just like, okay, well, you know, Russia and Ukraine, well, I don't like Joe Biden, or I do like Joe Biden, or maybe I remember that he mishandled Afghanistan. And this is also foreign policy. So I'm going to give him the same grading that I give him overall or on foreign policy overall. The question here, I think, is that now that you do have the saturation news coverage, as Galen mentioned, are people's kind of priors going to be updated or are they going to fall into their partisan corners? And there's one poll that I've seen so far. It was from Morning Consult, and this is the actually the only poll I've seen so far that was conducted entirely after the invasion, although I'm sure more will come out next week if they're not being released like right now uh, before I had a chance to look at them. Um, but this poll from Morning Consult actually gave him a slightly positive approval rating on Ukraine, 48% to 43%. Um, so I think that does suggest that there is some room for Biden to improve on this question. Then I think there is a separate question that Galen brought up of like, okay, just if maybe Americans will think he's handling Ukraine well, but do they think that that is such an overwhelming issue that that's going to affect his overall approval rating and, and maybe bring him up in that regard? That's, I think, a big question. And I think historically, we've seen that foreign policy is not a major priority for American voters. Um, but if if we continue to see this kind of wall-to-wall coverage and, and you know, the, some of these things that we're hearing about, you know, Putin putting his nuclear forces on on alert um, that that might make Americans feel like, okay, this actually is like the major issue we should be concerned about at this time, then maybe, um, you know, maybe it could bring Biden out of the slump he's been in. I will say, Nathaniel, based on the extent of my airplane reporting yesterday, which is non-scientific, and you probably shouldn't pay attention to this anecdote at all. But other than myself, I saw one other person watching the news on the plane last night. Granted, this was a Sunday afternoon flight back from Mexico. I think people had other things on their minds. But before we started recording, we were trying to think of circumstances in which a bunch of people coming back from vacation might tune into the news. Apparently, this was not it. <laughs> um, but I, I thought I might throw that in there, given you know we did a recent episode on how much people overestimate American interest in politics in general. And so that was just interesting for me to see amongst hundreds of people. No one was really tuned in the day that Putin had said he was, you know, pushing their nuclear capabilities into a higher gear. Right. Well, I was just going to say that I, I think there's a number of hurdles to Biden getting any kind of real movement on his approval ratings based on his response to Russia. One of them being that this messaging that we're getting from uh, Republicans being that this is all or partly Biden's fault, you know, no matter what you're doing, even if it's considered the right thing, if people think that it's your fault to begin with, I don't know that they're going to be that impressed that you're like doing what they would like you to do now. Um, another potential hurdle for Biden is the fact that some of the, the sanctions could have impacts here at home as far as oil prices. And with those prices already being spiked currently, um, and people very upset about that, to see prices go up higher, they're going to blame Biden for that and be very unhappy about it, even though it's a consequence of a, a very popular um, move as, as a response to Russia being these, these financial sanctions. And I do think that a lack of information or, or lack of, of 
being well acquainted with this with this conflict, which could very well shift. And maybe more people are paying attention now that uh, Russia's actually invaded. But I did see a poll. This was from the beginning of the month. So there was obviously these tensions were already brewing um, from Morning Consult. And they asked uh, people to find Ukraine on a blank map of Europe. And only 34% could correctly identify Ukraine. And what was really interesting to me, though, about that that poll was that voters who were able to correctly find Ukraine on a map were more likely to um, back more assertive uh, re- reactions to to Russia. So, fifty uh, percent of those who said they could locate who could locate Ukraine on the map said that the U.S. should send arms to Kiev while negotiating with Russia, uh, compared to thirty seven percent among those who couldn't find Ukraine on the map. So, being more informed is going to change what you think the U.S. should do, um, and and many Americans just aren't super well informed yet. Yeah, Kaylee, I thought that was really interesting, um, also in part because it actually was an opposite finding from something that a few political scientists found back in 2014 when we were having a similar crisis with the um, Crimean Peninsula. They actually found that people who couldn't find Ukraine on a map were more likely to want to intervene. So I agree with your overall point that information is is an important variable, but I'm not sure it's clear which direction it runs. I do think, though, what Kaylee was pointing out with the economy is super important because it really seems like a little bit of a catch-22 for Biden. He's getting dragged down in large part because of concerns about inflation. Um, But this conflict, like if he handles it well, could very well make inflation worse. And I mean, it's not just the oil prices. Supply chains globally are already pretty disrupted. Um, The sanctions on Russia could have an even even bigger impact on that. Um, You know, the economy is just like not in a place globally where any kind of disruption is going to be well tolerated. And so it's not clear at this point what we're going to see in terms of the downstream economic consequences. But I think it's pretty likely that they will not be positive for Biden. And so it gets us into a situation where maybe things in Ukraine are going the way Americans would prefer them. You know, we're imposing sanctions, we're not getting involved militarily, maybe as Putin starts this nuclear saber rattling, which, you know, I think if anything's going to get Americans to tune in, that will probably be it. It's pretty unnerving. Um, And, you know, maybe Biden helps de-escalate that in some way, and people are impressed by that. That's still not going to change what we've been seeing at home with the prices that people are seeing at gas stations, the prices that they're seeing at the grocery store. And so I wonder if, you know, there's a tension between the everyday reality that people are concerned about, like, how am I going to pay for milk versus what they see on the TV in a place that, you know, they're becoming more aware of clearly, you know, is at war, horrible images, a huge tragedy, but is on the other side of the world. Amelia, yeah, to put numbers to the point that you just made, one of the few polls that has been conducted and released since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, ABC News asked about support for economic sanctions And 67% supported the United States and European allies imposing economic sanctions on Russia, with 20% opposed and the rest unsure. If sanctions produced higher energy prices, however, as Biden has warned, support declines to 51%, with 33% opposed. So, as you mentioned, this is not happening in a vacuum, and people will not necessarily like the sort of blowback that economic sanctions may have. Yeah, and I think it all goes back to, again, the the finding in political science that Americans tend to put foreign policy on the back burner when kind of making decisions about how to vote or their domestic politics. And I, I would personally bet on people caring more about pocket their pocketbook issues um, than, you know, as you said, Amelia, what's going on on the TV halfway around the world. That was sort of the note that I wanted to end on, which is, you know, we're going to talk later in this podcast about how enduring this conflict may be and how you know, severe it may become. But it seems like, at least currently, there's something of a divide amongst elites in the Republican Party, in particular, perhaps the front runner for the Republican nomination in 2024, out of step with maybe congressional leadership. Other people who have their sights set on the Republican nomination in 2024, basically breaking with Trump and being more hawkish on Putin and Russia. What is the kind of context or it has it already happened, in which this becomes 
a real salient issue in American political life. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that political scientists have found have kept foreign policy on the political or electoral agenda in the past have been um, if the media is covering it uh, a lot, uh, which certainly is true right now, but I think there's a question about how long that will be sustained. So, for example, I remember back in January 2020 when we kind of had the standoff with Iran um, over killing one of its generals, and everybody thought that this was going to be a a major deal. And then, of course, two months later, the pandemic happened and and everybody forgot about it. And actually, they forgot about it even before then. So a lot depends, obviously, on what happens in Ukraine and whether this, you know, this invasion ends uh, with a whimper uh, or with a bang. Um, Poor choice of words, I guess, there. But uh, uh, media coverage is certainly one of them. And then um, whether another thing that has mattered historically is whether the views on the conflict um, kind of graft well onto existing partisan differences. So if there's like a clear Democratic versus Republican split on the issue, um, that's like kind of half true now because of what we've been talking about, where Republicans view Biden as weak and you know having caused the crisis maybe, but then um, there's also kind of agreement about the things that he's actually doing. Yeah, so the, those are kind of two of the, the functions that I think will um, will matter about whether this sticks around. All right, well, we're going to leave things there for now. Of course, we will continue watching how Americans are reacting to this and, and also what's, what's happening on the ground. And we're also going to talk to an expert on the foreign policy of former Soviet states later on in this podcast. So I'm going to let you go. Amelia, stick around and let's talk about for a moment Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court. But thank you, Kaylee and Nathaniel. Thanks, Kaylee. Thanks, Kaylee. We're going to look at how Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson might change the court if nominated. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Last Friday, President Biden nominated D.C. Circuit Court Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. She accepted the nomination, and now it is up to the Senate to confirm her. She would be the first Black woman and first former public defender to sit on the Supreme Court. So, Amelia, let's talk about how her possible addition to the court could shape it ideologically. How do we go about trying to estimate a judge or justice's ideological positioning, given that oftentimes these types of people don't make very blunt statements about their political or even legal views. This is my perpetual struggle as someone who tries to cover um, law on the courts from a quantitative perspective. And it is difficult to get good estimates of Supreme Court justices' ideology 
it is even harder to get a good estimate of a circuit court judge. And without getting super into the weeds about why that is, basically circuit court judges, um, they rule differently. They rule in three judge panels. So it's harder to figure out what one individual judge thinks about any particular issue. And also they're controlled by precedent. So they broadly have to do what the Supreme Court says. And so, you know, the Supreme Court can deviate from precedent. There's much more room for Supreme Court justices to really say what they think the law should be. Lower court judges do not have that luxury. So it can be difficult to figure out, even when you have a sense of what a judge's track record is on a particular issue, whether that's them just following the law and they might do something different if they had the power to do it. So we do have a couple of metrics for looking at circuit court judges' ideologies. And one of them basically uses the politicians who named them as a proxy, which makes sense. You know, we live in a world where the courts have a lot of power. They're ruling on very high-profile political issues. This is increasingly something that voters are thinking about. And so you would think that politicians would be more likely to nominate people to the courts who agree with them. And that is fundamentally the basis of this metric. The other metric that we can look at looks at judges' campaign contributions. And this is one that sort of has its pluses and minuses too. I mean, the big plus is that you are actually looking at what the judge themselves did, um, which you are not for the other score. The minus, the, the I mean, there are a couple of minuses. One is, you know, how much weight do you put on campaign contributions they made? And add to that, that federal judges, once they become federal judges, can't contribute to political campaigns anymore. So this is a dated metric. And increasingly, what we're seeing with Supreme Court nominees is that they have been on the federal courts for quite a while. So for Katanji Jackson, um, she was nominated to the district court under Obama in 2012 and was confirmed in 2013. So we're not looking at a super up-to-date metric here, and neither of these look at her actual rulings. Based on those very limited metrics, and then we can get into maybe less quantifiable metrics, uh, (laughs) based on those... What do we know about Katanji Brown-Jackson as a judge? Well, so we know that she will be liberal. Um, did not need to go to the metrics to figure that out, but, you know, <laughs> yes. got to earn my salary. So so there we go. Um, and according to the metric that is based on the ideologies of the politicians, um, it actually looks like she would be a fairly moderate liberal. Um, she would be to the right of all of the other Democratic appointed justices who are currently on the bench, including Breyer. That I would take with a grain of salt, because the way this metric works is it's based on the ideology of the president and the two home state senators of the judge. And the idea being that, you know, back in a world where senators had more input into when judges, which judges were nominated, their ideology was pretty important for understanding it. Um, That is a no longer really the case in the Senate and B for the DC circuit does not matter anyway, because any judges who serve in DC do not have a home state senator. So it is just based on the nominating president's ideology. And that is a pretty thin basis to be drawing any big conclusions about how someone will rule when they get onto the court. So we looked at this metric because it's the one that is traditionally used. And, you know, it has sort of a track record of being relatively predictive in the past. I would say that in this case, I probably would not bet a lot of money on that. Um, The other metric shows Ketanji Jackson being really far to the left, further to the left than Sonia Sotomayor, who is currently um, sort of anchoring the left wing of the Democratic appointed branch of the court. And that was that's based off of campaign contributions. Yeah, financial contributions. So, you know, I would say, again, that metric has caveats. Um, and especially when you look at the rest of the Supreme Court, you can see it's not perfect because it has 
Alito and Thomas closer to the center than they are in reality. Justice Alito and Justice Thomas are the two most conservative justices on the Supreme Court. That's not how they show up in this data because, you know, it. both of them have been federal judges for decades and decades. They haven't made a political contribution in a really long time. Um, but I will say in a world where ideological consistency is something that politicians and presidents are looking for more and more in their Supreme Court justices, I probably would put more weight on where those judges and and potential nominees have been in terms of their campaign contributions, just because I think it's more of a signal about where they stand ideologically. Okay, so let's, we've done our due diligence as 538. We've looked at the (laughs) metrics. Now put those aside. Given what we know about her as a person, the decisions that she has made during the short time that she's been on the DC Circuit Court, and her biography in general, what kind of jurisprudence might we expect? So she has, I mean, she has a really interesting background. And I think, you know, we tend to look at what the political impact of a nominee is going to be, the ideological impact. And this is a hard one for that because it is a Democratic appointee replacing another Democratic appointee. But as the first Black woman on the court, I mean, she's going to have an impact that is maybe hard to quantify, but we we will see over the coming years. Um, so I just want to say, you know, that the way that we at 538 tend to look at these nominees doesn't always capture the kind of historic significance of this nomination. And I want to pause and acknowledge this, even though it's not going to change the ideological balance of the court, this is still a really big deal. But in terms of the kind of justice she would be, So as you mentioned, she's a former public defender, which is a first for the court. And she's also has extensive trial court experience, which most of the other justices don't have. Um, uh, Judge Jackson was a trial court judge for um, several years before she was nominated to the DC circuit. And that means that she has had a lot more experience with kind of like everyday criminal justice. She's sentenced people. You know, she's sort of gone through like a lot of employment related lawsuits. Like this is sort of the kind of nitty gritty everyday stuff that Supreme Court justices tend to be pretty far removed from. And so that's a difference, too, that I think could really affect the way she rules. And she's also an expert on federal sentencing. Um, One of her other jobs before she joined the court or before she was nominated to the federal bench, was with the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Um, And that's significant because, you know, the Supreme Court does get cases that have to do with sentencing, and this is something where she has really deep expertise. As a former public defender, there's research indicating that folks who have been public defenders, they are less likely to sentence defendants to prison time. Obviously, on the Supreme Court, she is not going to be sentencing people, but she could be weighing in in a way that sort of encourages uh, more, you know, forgiving sentencing guidelines for federal judges. Um, And I'll just add, she also has sort of personal family experience with the criminal justice system that many of the other justices don't have. Um, She has an uncle who was sentenced um, to a life sentence under a three strikes law for a nonviolent drug crime. His sentence was later commuted by President Barack Obama. Um, So I would say based on all of that, we should be seeing someone who really has kind of a unique perspective on the Supreme Court, particularly criminal justice issues, and a background that would indicate to me that we are probably going to see someone landing closer to Sotomayor at the left wing of the court. Of course, as you mentioned, this is not going to change the ideological makeup of the court. It will, if she is confirmed, still be six conservatives, three liberals on the court. We have no idea how the makeup of the court may change in the future. So maybe her jurisprudence, although her impact will be limited probably early on, may end up having more of an impact. We don't know. But anyway, that's some of the biography. Does it seem like a straight path to confirmation at this point? I mean, Galen, if Democrats mess this up, I mean, it's just, you know, 
Like, anything can happen. Um, but they have the votes. It doesn't seem like Jackson is going to be getting a lot of Republican support. Um, three Republicans actually did cross the aisle to vote for her um, when she was nominated to the D.C. Circuit last year. Um, one of them is Lindsey Graham, who has already suggested in some statements on Twitter that he is probably not going to be supporting her this time around. What changed in that time? Um, Got to ask him. Yeah, but I think there's no real evidence that I've seen that Democrats are kind of breaking ranks on this. And that's what we'd expect based on how they've behaved with other court nominees. They've been incredibly unified so far. So I think in terms of the votes, this should be pretty smooth sailing. I don't think that means the hearings themselves will be smooth sailing for Judge Jackson. Um, As the first Black woman, I think she is going to be treated very differently than a white man would be, or even a white woman. Um, I think she's, you know, already um, conservatives are very upset that Biden promised that he would nominate a Black woman, even though presidents have, you know, said many times in the past that they would nominate a justice of a particular background to kind of make the court more representative of the country. Um, Republicans and conservatives are very upset about this. There's been a lot of questioning of her qualifications, even though she is highly, highly, highly qualified to serve on the court. So, you know, I think the hearing process itself um, could be a bit of a saga, but Democrats should be able to pull this off. All right. Well, I'm sure we will have plenty more to discuss when confirmation hearings get underway. But for now, thank you for joining me, Amelia. Thanks, Galen. Now let's circle back to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're going to talk about how we got to this moment, what might happen next, and how war in the region can be avoided going forward. And here with me to do that is senior political scientist at the nonprofit, nonpartisan RAND Corporation, Samuel Cherik. He's an expert on the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states and co-author of the book, Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis, and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I know it has been a few days now, and this has been pretty well covered in the press. But as far as you understand it, why has Russia chosen to invade Ukraine sort of more broadly, and why in this moment specifically? So it has been covered, but frankly, you know, uh, the challenge with analyzing the behavior of a personalistic authoritarian regime is that none of us are in Putin's head. And so we all have to be a little bit humble in terms of our assertions of absolute certainty about why now. And although there were a number of us who pointed out that the Ukraine crisis, the lack of a resolution uh, around it was sort of a ticking time bomb, none of us said, you know, I, I don't know of anyone who said that it's going to happen you know, uh, six months before it did. That said, once the buildup did begin in the late fall uh, and winter, um, a lot of things became clear just based on the, the what was moving around the hardware. But to answer your question about why Putin decided to create and then execute this option now, uh, I would say that basically after February 2015, which was when the Minsk II um, ceasefire agreement was signed in Ukraine, Russia was playing a long game where it thought that basically over time it would sort of win in Ukraine, to, you know, to make a long story short. And at some point in 2019-2020, I think it reassessed that um, idea about a long game and recognized that all the trends in Ukraine were working against it. And losing, quote-unquote, in Ukraine was never going to be acceptable for Russia. And so basically they decided that something needed to be done to change those trends, because over time, you know, you'd end up with, from their perspective, geopolitical defeat. And frankly, it was somewhat surprising that it took them so long to reach that conclusion. Um, And once they did, it seems like they really ratcheted up the pressure to try to change the status quo. And eventually, when they couldn't get what they wanted through negotiation, they decided to get it through force. So what is Putin's goal, both in the long term and short term as regards Ukraine? Well, in the short term, it seems like he's pursuing regime change. Um, I mean, an analogy not to equate or uh, imply moral equivalency uh, would be the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, 
This is sort of like the run to Baghdad uh, being repeated in the middle of Europe. And based on the rhetoric that's being used, they want to oust the government and install a loyal regime. Now, I don't know how well, in fact, I know that that doesn't seem, that hasn't been a very well thought out plan, the political side of it. Even the military planning has been a little bit um, iffy. Uh, over the long term, frankly, what the what Putin has in mind as a sort of new equilibrium that is stable is is also hard to say. I think basically what he wants is control of Ukraine, and uh, he's willing to use the military to achieve it. Um, I think that's sort of where we are right now. You referenced that the military plan might not have been so well thought out, and it seems like thus far from what we know about. Russia's plans, it hasn't been as successful as they hoped. So what are the possibilities in terms of where things go from here? Since regime change, it it appears, was not going to be just a few days kind of uh, exercise. Well, we're in very early days, uh, and the Russian military still has uh, huge advantages um, in capabilities, uh, in numbers, in, you know, the kinds of systems they can deploy Ukrainians are still very much the underdogs here. Um, and if the Russians actually do uh, use all the capabilities that they've arrayed around Ukraine, it's just a matter of time. So there is a somewhat vaguely positive sign today that there were at least talks that didn't um, completely fail, that the, there was agreement to pursue a second round, unclear on what terms, of course. Um, but Frankly, unless there's a negotiated solution, I would put that as a low probability. I think this gets, you know, much more brutal quite quickly. And um, it, it's just sort of a matter of time uh, before the at least the sort of high level political aim of ousting the government um, becomes reality. Now, uh, you referenced the poor planning. I mean, there there seemed to have been a lot of war optimism in, in dominating the planning and also sort of poor um, coordination. In other words, I think Russia assumed that this would be much easier than it turned out to be and that the Ukrainian government and military would sort of fold once they saw any sort of Russian attack. And that hasn't been the case. But they're going to have to they're going to regroup and they are regrouping right now and steadily making, you know, sort of a tritting the Ukrainian positions in the south um, and the east. And, you know, this assault on Kharkiv, the second largest city, is pretty significant. So, you know, unless there's really a, a negotiated solution found, I would expect that this is just sort of a matter of time. What would the outcome of regime change in Ukraine be? I know there's a long history of failed attempts at regime change. It lasts for some period of time, sparks insurgencies, oftentimes fails. The most recent obvious example is Afghanistan. You know, what does that kind of dynamic look like if Russia is successful at regime change? It's really hard to say. Um, You know, I think there's some chance that war weariness and resignation and the routing of the Ukrainian military, assuming that does happen, leads to some stability with like a IRA type insurgency that is causing trouble and violence, but nonetheless isn't, you know, competing for control over territory. That I would say east of the Dnieper. West of the Dnieper, it's a big mystery to me what the Russians actually plan to do, because, you know, that's really hostile territory. There are no sympathy for, um, you know, Moscow uh, in the sort of traditional heartland of Ukrainian nationalism in the West. So uh, it's it's hard to say. I mean, it doesn't seem that uh, we, a lot of us kind of thought that maybe there was some, you know, network of Russian agents that was going to be activated and there would be a relatively seamless, um, or not seamless, but like, that, that there was a political plan to accompany the military one, and it doesn't really seem like there is. So I can't, it's hard to uh, predict with any degree of certainty about what that looks like. It could well be highly unstable for a protracted period of time. It seems like the economic sanctions have so far hit Russia pretty hard. I mean, is the goal there that to persuade Putin to change his mind? And is there a chance of that being successful? 
So that's a very interesting question. You know, um, we really went to 11 out of 10 on the sanctions, I think much faster than um, a lot of people were assuming. I think even than the U.S. government might have been planning um, just because of the sort of political reaction to the horror that is unfolding in Ukraine um, has, I think, pushed the Europeans much faster to move much faster than anyone really anticipated. And, and the U.S. and the Europe have been coordinating on this, obviously. So uh, first and foremost, this is about sort of punishment, really, um, cost imposition. I think the challenge with using the sanctions as a tool to modify Putin's war aims is that we haven't actually put them on, you know, put sanctions relief on the table as a condition for, you know, Russia taking a step that they plausibly could take right now. They can't uninvade Ukraine. So far, basically, the sanctions are just about cost imposition. And that that is a challenge, because if the prospect of relief is not clear to the target of the sanctions, they just they have to assume that these are forever sanctions. And then, you know, basically, they just price them in and uh, have to, you know, it doesn't matter what they do now going forward. So in a way, it kind of the practical effect might not be to deter or to, you know, uh, make Putin less likely to pursue his maximalist aims uh, unless they are used as leverage. And we haven't seen signs of that yet. So, I mean, I think there's an assumption in a lot of Western capitals that there's nothing really that can be done to stop him through negotiation, that either this gets so bloody that he has to stop, although I think everyone recognizes that's an outside proposition, unlikely proposition. Um, but yeah, so the sanctions is, are really more intended for cost imposition than they are for changing behavior. So it sounds like in general, you're not optimistic about a somewhat quick and positive resolution of this conflict for Ukraine. It's hard for me to imagine, frankly. Um, I think, I, you know, I, what I would say is that we shouldn't, while the bravery and solidarity of the Ukrainian people are, it's extremely, you know, moving and impressive. Like, we shouldn't let our heartstrings de uh, determine our analytical judgments. And it's still, uh, they're still... Welcome to 538. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the numbers still, to speak of numbers, the, the numbers still aren't stacked against Ukraine um, in terms of the military conflict. And the Russian military and Putin as its, you know, sort of military leader are inclined to double down when they face resistance rather than retreat. I mean, they've gone so far now that it's almost hard to imagine how they won't. And in fact, we're seeing that with attacks on population centers now, which had been which they hadn't done so far. I mean, a lot of the things that they hadn't done so far have, have, have surprised observers of the Russian military, um, including me. Uh, and, um, you know, now we're seeing some of that unfold. Pulling the lens back a little bit and looking at the broader picture, how much of what's happening today can be explained through a Cold War lens? And how much of it is, you know, more complicated than that? Tell me what you mean by a Cold War lens. This is simply an extension of tensions that we thought had receded in the early 90s, but really didn't. It's just Russia versus the West and wanting its own fear of influence the same way the West has. Well, so, I mean, uh, it's clearly more complicated than that. What I would say is that for Russia, um, the U.S. is the primary source of threat perceptions, and they see the potential for alignment with the U.S. of Ukraine as like the ultimate danger here, ultimately. I mean, we say NATO, but really when Russia says NATO, it means the U.S. So threat perceptions regarding the U.S. are very important. However, Ukraine in itself is its own very particular, you know, occupies a very particular place in Russian strategic thinking, like to put it crudely, among their priorities, there's like national survival and then Ukraine. I mean, it's really, uh, it's hard to underestimate how, how central it is to, to the way they see their own security, that it's having some say over Ukraine, avoiding Ukraine becoming like a, an ally of, you know, a part of NATO or, or used to be used against Russia in some way. There is a 
West Russia, U.S. Russia dynamic that is at the core of this, but there's also a Ukraine Russia dynamic too. Um, and so a lot of these things come together uh, to produce these kinds of outcomes. But if you look at the way Russia um, even just focused its diplomacy in the months leading up to this, they were they weren't even talking to the Ukrainians. They were just talking to NATO and the U.S. Essentially, you have sort of focused part of your research on the. Eurasian countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union and their relationship with Russia and their relationship with the West. Obviously, you 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 have written a whole book on this. You could probably write even more. What is the sort of series of events that has happened since the end of the Cold War that sort of brought us back to this point 30 years later, a, a place of conflict that we thought might have ended 30 years ago? You know, there are lots of reasons why U.S. relations with Russia have soured over the years. But the real breaking point, watershed moment before 2022 was 2014. Um, Russia's, uh, you know, annexation of Crimea and invasion of eastern Ukraine. Um, and which I would really see, uh, broadly as part of this broader contest for the states on Russia's periphery that Russia saw the Maidan revolution of February 2014 as essentially a U.S.-backed coup, and that the geopolitical implications of that were just unacceptable. And so the contest over the states on Russia's periphery, even going back to the war in Georgia in 2008, have been, you know, there have been many disagreements that have existed with Russia, but the ones regarding the states on Russia's periphery are the ones that have consistently, you know, multiple times led to war. And I think that is the, the big picture takeaway here, that the contestation of these lands in between Russia and the West um, have created, you know, basically made the Russia-West relationship have torn it asunder. And uh, uh, that has been really, I think, a, a, a dynamic that accelerated dramatically after 2014 and particularly now in 2022. This is probably an ignorant question or just too simple Um of a question, but why does Russia care so much about the sort of economic and security relationships of other Eurasian countries? You know, it's a it's a very good question, um, and some you know the the threat perceptions of you know it's political cultures in different countries are obviously esoteric things, and they're sort of not necessarily rational from everyone else's perspective, but one way to think about it is that this is the metropole of a former empire, right? And a lot of empires that have broken up over the years did not have their former satellites arrayed around them physically. Um, so the British Empire obviously was an overseas empire, as was the French. Um, and uh, so the, the implications of events that occur in these um, countries for Russia, given that, you know, of the, the physical closeness and the, the resulting shared ties, be they economic, cultural, historical, or otherwise, are just much more central to, um, you know, the, the, how Russian leaders think about their national security priorities than, say, you know, events in India are for policymakers in London. Um, I think big picture, that's one way to think about it. Um, another is just that there has been a dispute over how the, the uh, order, the security architecture of the broader Europe, Eurasian space should be constructed, really, since uh, 1991. And this is where the rubber really hit the road, that Russia might not have liked the way things were going before... NATO and the EU sort of reached this point, um, but having them go beyond that, even if it's not with full membership, but sort of deep integration of Russia's neighbors was just sort of something that Russia could not accept. And there, you know, there are both rational reasons for that, and I think perhaps some that might seem irrational, but that is definitely how Russian leaders see it. Is there a way that Western and Russian goals can coexist in the region? How does this get resolved? So in the before times, um, like before last week, uh, I would have said that there are plausible 
alternatives to the contest that we had, you know, uh, that we, you know, that we have that could have been mutually acceptable. I mean, we, I, I had a whole project devoted to trying to figure out what those might look like. Uh, and the reality of the, uh, the status quo ante was that, you know, Ukraine might have wanted to get into NATO, but there was no consensus within NATO about offering Ukraine membership. Um, so in a way that could have proven the basis for some sort of non-alignment or neutrality. I mean, the problem was that Russia's 2014 actions, the annexation and invasion of the Donbass, the annexation of Crimea and invasion of the Donbass basically shifted Ukraine's own threat perceptions in such a way that it made it hard to, to compromise. So what the question is what now? And it's, it's, that's a really hard question. Like, you know, with Russia having conducted this major war of aggression against one of its neighbors, in a way, the prospect of compromise becomes even more remote and understandably so. I mean, there are war crimes being committed right now, and it's really it's just atrocious to watch. On the other hand, that means that this region, including other states like Belarus, Georgia, Moldova, Armenia, will continue to be a source of instability and the potential for conflict, um, you know, exists in all of these places. If there were to be, say, new leader comes to power in Belarus as a result of street protests, which almost happened a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, and suddenly Belarus's uh, affiliation is up for grabs. Um, I could see Russia undertaking a military operation again, given the circumstances. So we have a real problem here in that Russia is making, you know, its own actions are making the kind of diplomatic compromises that might create stability more, I mean, almost impossible to achieve, at least in the short term. I mean, over the medium term, it really depends on how this conflict goes in the next couple of weeks. So much, I think, will will depend on that, that it's sort of hard to say um, or hard to see the path until we know what that outcome is. It's clear that so much is so unknown at this point, but Wrapping up here, you know, one thing we like to do at 538 when there are a lot of unknown outcomes is just either, you know, sort of categorize them or, or lay them out. What do you see as, at the very least, the sort of best and worst case scenarios um, for this conflict going forward? I mean, I guess the sort of win the lottery scenario is like there's a palace coup in Moscow as a result of all this economic pressure and Gorbachev 2.0 comes to power um, and repents for Russia's sins and pays reparations and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that just seems so low probability given the nature of the Russian regime and the way Putin has eliminated all political opposition and so on. So, um, you know, that <laughs> just put that some people are dreaming of that now. Fair so enough. I think it's it's worth noting that like, OK, yes, if, if we could achieve that tomorrow without any costs, I would sign up for that, too. Um, you know, I think a more, a less fantastical, but still highly unlikely outcome is that there's some negotiated solution that, that results in Putin basically effectively giving up on his aim of decapitating the Ukrainian government. And, uh, I think that would be a huge achievement if it, if it were to be possible. Um, you know, the worst case scenarios all involve this conflict escalating beyond Russia, Ukraine. Um, Russia is now fighting a major conventional war in a country that borders four U.S. allies on land and another one in the Black Sea. Apparently, some, you know, air raid sirens in Poland have gone off when uh, Russia launched missile strikes at, at military targets uh, in the regions that border Poland. Um, this could get out of hand very quickly. Moreover, the kinds of sanctions that we're imposing now are really ones that could, you know, are leading to effectively the seizing up of the Russian financial markets and potentially even the Russian economy. From Putin's perspective, that looks like we're, we're you know, moving to the next stage of our devious plan to overthrow his government. And if that if they come to that conclusion, then, you know, lots of stuff is on the table that might not have been before. Um, so. You know, I think the the worst case involves a, a much broader conflict that eventually, you know, sees potential direct clashes between Russia and U.S. allies than maybe in Russia and the U.S. itself. 
And we really need to try to avoid that. And it's clear that the Biden administration is very conscious of that problem and is trying to establish the kind of hotlines, um, deconfliction mechanisms to avoid misunderstandings and mistakes. The problem is, apparently, the Russians aren't picking up the phone, which is not, you know, reassuring. All right. Well, it wasn't my intention to leave on that note, but I guess <laughs> I set you up for it with the final question that I asked. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today and this analysis. And we'll we'll give you another call as things progress if we need more of your insights. But thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Samuel Chop is a senior political scientist at the nonprofit, nonpartisan RAND Corporation and is the co-author of the book, Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And actually, it is Tony Chow's birthday today. So happy birthday to you, Tony. Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.